0: everyone, and welcome to the unofficial Unreal Engine podcast, where we talk about Unreal Engine and uh, missing AA batteries.
1: Yeah, that's, that's one of the major themes of tonight, right? Absolutely. That and, and whiskey, I guess.
0: Right? <laughs> and a little whiskey. Well, um,
1: we're your hosts, Jacob and Alex. Uh, before we get started, uh, subscribe on whatever platform you're watching or listening or whatever it is you're doing, uh, and, and make sure you leave us a rating, wherever that is. Uh, we're very excited to to get things started again. This is episode two. Uh, you know, thanks I, everyone
0: for your feedback. Yes. By the way, on episode one, that was great and uh, absolutely helps us figure out what the heck this show is going to be. Exactly right. Uh,
1: so I heard you were playing with Lumen and Nanite in Unreal Five point one. Give us what? some give us some context there. What does that mean for maybe folks who don't know? some of these, these words.
0: <laughs> sure, OK. Uh, so yes, we're, we're going to cover a little bit of uh, Lumen, in VR in particular, in, in 5.1 and Nanite. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, the reason that a lot of people got real happy and excited about Unreal Engine 5 when it was first uh, announced in what feels like eight years ago, but was like really? maybe yeah. two years ago, um, was this idea of being able to have global illumination in real time, lighting your scene, being able to move light around, have bounces of that light, uh, have that all processing in real time, and also having billions and billions of triangles with geometry. You heard Jacob in the last episode give a, a pretty cool breakdown of a, a technical talk that goes into Nanite. Yeah. But Nanite, once again, is the ability to have almost like pixel level, LODs, levels of detail, where it's okay to have billions of polygons in your scene because uh, Unreal Engine isn't really going to be processing more than what it can register at that particular yeah. resolution. And for Unreal Engine 5, that initial release, the 5.0 release, and, and as well as the early access one that came out um, about a year and a half ago, was really targeted at games. And uh, well, I want to say like general games. So things like virtual reality, things like ICVFX, Uh, Things like foliage, translucency, these were not supported by Lumen and Nanite. However, with Unreal Engine 5.1, there is kind of a a first pass at starting to bring this support to the Fold. I've been playing in particular with the VR side of this for some time now, and uh, wasn't having a lot of luck. I was getting lots of crashes, uh, very, very low frame rates, and I finally kind of hit on something of a... Uh, a a working model for like okay this is like a good frame rate and and it's running and it looks beautiful and i kind of just want to sit in a dark room with glowing (laughs) orbs and meditate
1: yeah i mean that that was pretty surprising for me i got to try out a bit of of what he was working on and seeing light bouncing around um inside of vr was pretty pretty cool and and actually uh to kind of uh give some more context here I, i think one of the big things that um People kind of expect jumping into real-time and game engines um, that maybe they're used to seeing in other content or maybe other workflows like uh, you know Maya, Houdini, other DCCs that are not real-time. Global illumination is this huge topic, right? Global illumination is about how light uh, bounces around the scene and interacts between objects. Um, it's it's a very complex thing to reproduce in real time, and and you know for most of games history it's been a trade-off between you know, frame rate uh, and performance and then you know, kind of a, a realistic and reactive uh, lighting system. And Lumen was so exciting for a lot of us because it came to the table and then all of a sudden it can do real time. So like you can move a light and things in your scene are gonna change. And at the same time, it really kind of captures the quality of bounce lighting that a lot of folks were looking for, particularly in stuff like, you know, ArcViz, Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, places where previously you were relying upon things like baked lighting
0: and and other kind of tricks of the trade to get things right. Yeah, baked lighting could process as many bounces of light as you wanted and that could look very beautiful, but that light is then baked and you can't change it. Uh, Then you have, you know, stationary lights, which for those who don't know, allows you to bake a light but still change something like the intensity of the light uh, and the color. But then movable light, you would think that that is you know, the, the best, ideal <laughs> version of light to do. But in Unreal Engine 4, there were a lot, of, a lot of limitations with movable light, including, you know, a very high overhead, so you couldn't get a particularly great frame rate with it a lot of the time, and you weren't getting bounced light from it. So if yeah. you had a movable light hitting an object, you'd get a very hard shadow behind it. Um, you know, things like the skylight and, and other things, like maybe an ambient cube map, might start to give the illusion of bounced light and global illumination, but it was tricks.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, one last thing I'll I'll add there is that there is, uh, one of the, one of the kind of harder things to understand is the difference between, for example, things you might hear about like real-time ray tracing versus, uh, what like Lumen is based off of, uh, real-time ray tracing kind of came, you know, maybe a year or two before what we saw with Lumen. Uh, the biggest difference is that real-time ray tracing was essentially a way of kind of denoising, like, the the older way of doing things it had a bunch of acceleration um, and and it was um, it's very it was very novel um, but the difference between that and what Lumen does is that Lumen um, a gets far better performance uh, b it supports things like um, essentially accumulating your your uh, detailed and bounced lighting over time uh, which is super valuable for a bunch of use cases where maybe you don't necessarily need lighting to be um, you know uh, instantly accurate but like a few frames is okay uh, and that was something that like ray tracing just simply didn't handle uh, in addition to all sorts of caveats like deform- uh, like uh, mesh deforming and Uh, I don't know, there's really just a bunch of caveats that that we had to kind of deal with with ray tracing or like real-time ray tracing um, as compared to Lumen, which to some extent actually does still do quote-unquote ray tracing. You'll see like in the editor, for example, you'll see like do hardware accelerated tracing and stuff like that. Um, So it's still in there, but it is a a fundamentally different uh, system. And and maybe sometime we can do a, a deeper dive on it.
0: Yeah, the one other thing I'll add there uh, is Lumen uh, uses what are called mesh distance fields, which are kind of these uh, texture-based, approximate, almost like wax sculptures of uh, all the geometry in the scene, which is much faster for approximating the the lighting. And also we haven't mentioned reflections, like the real-time reflections you can get from Lumen, especially if you're piggybacking off of hardware ray tracing, can look wonderful. So yeah, to be in VR with like a rolling... Chrome yeah, ball so cool. that's reflecting the whole scene as it <laughs> roam, r- rolls is uh, is very exciting. Yeah, m-
1: maybe you can also help help folks understand a little bit more about why that's particularly challenging in VR.
0: Yeah, it's it's challenging in VR. I mean, everything's challenging in VR first and foremost <laughs> because you're rendering something twice, and uh, to make sure people don't feel sick, you're rendering it ideally at 90 or even 120 frames a second, uh, both those eyes, and you want it to be at as high of a resolution as possible. There's headsets like the uh, the Pimax and the Valve Index, which can support very, very high resolutions for each eye. And that's a challenge. So often you're spending a lot of time optimizing the scene, trying to reduce your draw calls, trying to reduce the uh, polygonal count, baking all your lighting. And the idea of all the features we just mentioned of Lumen and Nanite starting to come to VR, start to mean that, the same reason everyone else uh, not using VR and some of the other things I mentioned that Lumen and Nanite have not supported yet is exciting, is because Now we can start to have a little bit less concern about the technical requirements of making something work for VR. And now we can potentially just start to think more about being creative. We can have a larger scene that's using hero assets. We can have uh, light that's doing some very exciting things and have a level of realism that just comes as part of that Lumen-Nanite combination. Yeah,
1: I'm actually, um, one of the things that kind of popped in my head is I'm curious if... Uh, given the fact that um, uh, traces happen against like uh, distance fields, if actually you end up saving render time, uh, in addition to uh, um, you know the, obv- the the linear benefits, because if you're rendering both eyes, like it's the same distance. Uh, I don't know. I have all yeah. sorts of questions. If people want to like comment down below <laughs> about like I, either things that we've gotten kind of incorrect in, in, in this summary, I would love to learn more about this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because there's really just so much to talk about this, um, but tell people a little bit about how you got it working. Like, I, I'm curious what what you figured out here.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like I owe the community a, a proper tutorial on this, because <laughs> uh, I've been working on this for a while. And I, I guess I didn't want to give a tutorial that was not showing the right way to do this. But uh, first and foremost, I'd recommend opening up the VR template. This is assuming that you're on 5.1 preview by this point, or, or something like that, or maybe you've grabbed the source code from GitHub. Anyone, by the way, can grab Whatever the latest version is of Unreal Engine, it's it's totally public. There's a little bit of a process to access that, but you know, there's nothing special about uh, what Jacob and I do in order to get access to an early release of Unreal Engine here. But you uh, can tell your friends it's special. You can right? tell your friends yeah, it's yeah. special. You can say, Oh, I got I got uh, special access. Actually, to this on GitHub, it, it,
1: on GitHub, it does tell you you're part of Epic Games. That's right. Yeah. So you can say like, Oh, I, I work on Fortnite, and, and <laughs> like show them a
0: screenshot, and they'll say, Can you give me V Bucks? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> then you'll deal with that. Um, um, so yeah, so I recommend starting with the VR template. Um, this was created by Victor Broden over at Epic, and it's a really excellent starting point. It uses OpenXR, and now uses the, um, I believe it's called the Enhanced Input System, which we can talk about more another yeah. time. And uh, then you just want to start with changing a few settings in there. It should already have DirectX 12. Enabled, But if you want to use Nanite and you want Nanite to work well, you're also going to want to enable another DirectX 12 setting for uh, SM6, which I believe stands for Shader Model 6. Um, You're also going to want to make sure Generate Mesh Distance Fields is checked, which it should be already. And very important, um, most templates in Unreal Engine actually are using deferred rendering. Um, This one is using forward rendering or forward shading. And That's because that's what runs by far most efficiently in VR If you want to be able to use lumen and nanite in VR you need to uncheck that so no forward rendering shading It needs to be deferred and you access that just by unchecking that now from that point um, I had things that were working like a little bit, but they'd glitch and crash pretty quickly so first thing I did to actually get things to run smoother is to uncheck um, that supports hardware ray tracing on my computer. So I'm only using software ray tracing. I'm not taking advantage of all the extra punch you can get from uh, reflections and lighting using ray tracing. So that saves some overhead. But the biggest um, console variable I started to play with that just made everything stabilize is one that is VR dot pixel density and then a number between zero and one. And so what I found was no matter how simple my scene was, for VR using Lumen and Nanite, it would crash. I'd get like a direct X, you know, error, uh, and it would crash. And that was with pixel density set to one. As soon as I started to bring that down to .8, .7, .5, everything stabilized. Everything got smoother. And that's something that you can set up if you're going to use VR preview um, in editor. Then make sure you uh, set that up with your Cvars there. You can even put it in one of your any files. I think the the game the game engine any file in your config uh, settings. Yes. Yeah. So you could just literally have in there vr.pixel density 0.5 and then you know increase that, decrease that at runtime. I also have it in my level blueprint at begin play. Um, and then the other problem I was running into that has recently been solved is doing a build. Once you would build the project, it would uh, do something very weird when you'd press play when you'd open it up where everything would be rendering in your left eye which made you feel like you were having a stroke your left <laughs> and your right <laughs> eye were both being compressed into your left eye and the way to fix that is actually to disable uh, instanced stereo or instanced VR in your Sounds project dark. settings which again adds some overhead but uh, w- doing things like lowering the pixel density helped to compensate that so that solves that and then I do find now that my uh, built executables run very, very smooth. Uh, VR preview, a little bit of a lower frame rate. I do want to mention that VR mode, formerly known as the VR editor, actually runs the smoothest, and I don't know (laughs) if that's like a resolution thing or what, but um, pop into any scene that's using Lumen and Nanite, and if you've got a VR headset plugged in, you should get that little VR mode icon that's in the top toolbar. Try popping into that. I've done that with a bunch of example scenes, and uh, it's very cool to just move around that way.
1: Yeah, cool. Uh, And uh, I think... uh like we said, that once you kind of get that working, it's just it's very fascinating to see what kind of results you can get with Lumina because you were playing around with some some pretty cool assets. I won't like spoil your <laughs> project if you're like,
0: yeah, I mean itching
1: to, to release it as as something cool, but
0: oh it's okay. I mean and, and for anyone who hasn't seen the, the little videos I released. So, you know, I started with some real simple orbs, glowing orbs and reflective surfaces, and then everyone's like, oh, is there nanite in there? What's it the nanite? And it's like, yeah, it's it's the simple static meshes in the scene, but it's not really taking advantage of nanite. So I actually grabbed the um, the city sample buildings from the Matrix demo, which you can find on the marketplace, and I brought those into the scene, and I totally expected everything to crash and break, but uh very quickly I was able to fly around the city in (laughs) VR with like full Nanite quality there and if you're using something like the VR editor mode you can even turn on the debug uh, view modes for for Nanite and Lumen to see like just how many triangles you're processing but then when you go back into the normal mode to be able to zoom from super far away and then fly right up to like all the details of like a a statue or a sculpture on one of these buildings is really quite breathtaking
1: yeah it is it's it's one of those experiences that I know both of us have spent a lot of time in VR looking at architecture in particular. Um, and we. I, I felt like when I was working on that, um, it always felt like making sacrifices. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, the the, the hope or the dream, I guess, is, is that um, by enabling Nanite in, in these use cases that all of a sudden you can really get the detail and kind of artistic qualities you're looking for with while making fewer sacrifices right um yeah and I'm very excited about it
0: A couple other quick things I should mention. People have been asking about what I'm running this on. Um, I have a laptop with an RTX 3080M, as I'll call it, the mobile version, which is different actually from the (laughs) desktop 3080. Some people don't know that, so just want to point that out. And uh, Lumen and Nanite for VR are only currently supported with 5.1 using a desktop configuration. You're not going to get it running on a Quest or a Vive Focus 3 or anything like that.
1: Right. he's He has a quest. You might see this quest behind it, but you're using the link cable there. Yeah, right? so that's plugged in.
0: Uh, and AirLink would work fine, too. You could absolutely do it wireless. That's no problem. Sure. Cool. So the
1: other big thing that's <laughs> happened this week... Dizzy uh, we, week. Yeah, so uh, Alex and I, we spent a full week kind of getting immersed in virtual production. Yeah. And this is something I was super excited to jump into. Uh, so we spent a week learning about this stuff um, at an LED wall, um, and man, I, I, f- I learned so much. Uh, <laughs> Me too. There's really, uh, it's a pretty incredible thing because, um, I think kind of looking at, uh, virtual production from the side of someone who's coming from Unreal or other use cases, you kind of expect people to follow
0: similar workflows to mm-hmm. what you're using today, yeah. but they are completely
1: different, are Totally they? different, Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and if you if you look at some of the marketing videos for things like The Mandalorian and other productions like Thor: Love and Thunder that have used LED walls in a really meaningful way, it looks like everyone there knows exactly what they're doing and their <laughs> workflow is totally set, and it's yeah. like this very confident, driving, you know, I- experience. And you might look at something like that, and if you're really excited about getting into virtual production, you might think, oh, there's there's no room for me there. Like the, all the experts no. have already been established, and you know. <laughs> What I think it's really much more like is probably the the early days of ILM. There's a great documentary series on Disney Plus right now called Light and Magic, which we'll try and link. We're, yes, we'll, we're we'll try, try to, to link all that. the show notes stuff. Yeah, and and they go through just what a crazy workshop sandbox place it was early on, where they're throwing all sorts of stuff at the at the blue screen and seeing what works and what doesn't. Yeah, I I think it was it was fascinating for me because
1: um, a lot of the folks it seems that uh, have kind of jumped into per- virtual production or folks who came from, like, live entertainment. Yeah. Was not, which was not necessarily something that I was expecting, though it makes total sense now that I think about it. Right, like, it, it makes a lot of sense that if you were, like, doing live events for concerts or whatever it was, right, and you were operating LED walls anywhere, mm-hmm. like, you would have the skills necessary to do virtual production. It's just about, like, adding in the Unreal Engine component, right? Yeah. And it's been really fascinating to see how, for example, a lot of the equipment... Um, a lot of the, uh, from, from my point of view, I, you know, I'm an, an infrastructure and hardware guy. <laughs> like seeing how they kind of compose things is very interesting because it's kind of completely different from the way we would handle like normal workflows in, in really in any industry that Unreal has kind of touched up till now, you know, VFX and, and automotive and all these other places. Um, so that was really fascinating for me to see and kind of think about how like there's so so much work Left to be done yeah. in virtual production, so that the folks who are specialists in <laughs> production and in you know live entertainment and uh, you know whatever it is, like so that they can operate with folks who know a lot about Unreal mm-hmm. at the same plane, right? Yeah. Like there's a ton of tooling. Uh, I feel like we had a ton of discussions all week. About like, oh, it'd be really cool if I had a tool that did XYZ, you Mm -hmm. know, that set up my scene in some way or like adjusted lights for me or, you know, handled the sync of the displays and stuff like that. There's really such an amazing amount of, of work to be done there
0: yeah i I mean it almost makes me think of hearing uh again actually this was featured in the the light magic series george lucas talking about the hassle of dealing with physical film and him kind of dreaming even back in the 1970s of wouldn't it be great to have all this just exist on like a computer and you know we could do all of our editing and cutting that way and it would be so simple so that desire to have a level of automation and having everything kind of pre-configured and set up and and have things be speedy and to be able to iterate very fast like that's most virtual production in my understanding now isn't quite there yet even if you're someone who specializes in like LED wall configurations you're going to find from one LED wall to the other you can't necessarily bring one kind of setup with you uh, for every one of them they're all going to have their own eccentricities and there's not a lot of standardization between how all these different systems talk to each other so there's a lot of room for innovation there.
1: And it's it's also I mean uh, on kind of a, a nerdier side like a, a lot of this um, well one of the comments I was kind of making was when you take these LED walls and you're, you you know you're moving them around and you're kind of taking them place to place that's that's very much live entertainment yeah uh, it's the kind of thing where you you know you set them up and they are um, you know, you 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 know you load the project file for the the touring group that you're with right mm-hmm. like you set that up you have it working and y- usually you know there's not a whole lot that changes so everything's fine yeah right um, but what is pretty interesting is that you know these walls are now being kind of parked right they're they're fixed kind of uh, studios mm-hmm. and as soon as you do that you know it becomes infrastructure and all of a sudden there's all these new challenges about okay how do we not just accommodate one artist like how do we accommodate Tons of different assets. How do we accommodate, you know, uh, um, productions coming in and out? And I think that's really pretty fascinating in terms of like also things that Unreal Engine was not prepared no, to no, do, no. right? Like, <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> the to number do. of like times we swore off perforce. I know. I you know, know, is incredible. Um, I, so I think there's like there's a ton of stuff there, uh, and I'm I'm just really excited to see kind of what people do. To be honest. Um, on top of, like, what people make, right? Like, I I think there's just a ton of of tooling and and stuff like that that, you know, like, I yeah, and, awesome. and
0: I would just encourage anyone who's a tinkerer, who, who really yeah. is passionate about this space and wants to get into it. There's a lot of opportunities to do that. You know, start by learning display and, um, and the switchboard system in Unreal. Uh, maybe yeah. start playing with some of the other software that interfaces with that. There's a lot of YouTube videos that cover this kind of stuff. And you can start by basically having your own quote-unquote LED wall set up with yeah. a couple monitors exactly, like the ones yeah. Jacob has behind us here. Um, and those can you can use action figures or something like that and treat those as human scale. <laughs> yeah, that'd be people. fun, actually. I might the try that else. now. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You you can do it with a home setup. You don't need something crazy. Um, you know, with an asterisk, like yeah. like we're saying, it, this stuff it is changes. not completely solved. So like, you're gonna have to kind of expect you're gonna you're gonna hit some walls here and there. Yeah, but that's really the f- fascinating part of being. Part of the Unreal Engine community right now is watching how fast this is growing, uh, and watching how many different kinds of people are getting involved. Right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I mean, that's really a mark of, you know, a sort of transformative technology. Mm-hmm. Um, even though Unreal is very old in that sense, <laughs> right? Like it, it's very old compared to a lot of the stuff that, um, you know, we do on a day-to-day basis with with technology, um, and yet, like the stuff that. VFX and like these studios are doing are even older than that
0: right like (laughs) so that it's pretty it's pretty cool to see all this stuff come back together really absolutely and I should mention I'm I'm realizing that when we were talking about Lumen and Nanite at the beginning of the conversation I mentioned that you know there's all sorts of things that it hasn't been compatible with and I think I threw out the term ICVFX which stands for in-camera visual effects. That's something that often happens in virtual production. And again, you know, everyone using virtual production for the most part has stayed in 4.27 because that has been pretty stabilized for things like virtual production and Unreal Engine 5, um, still not quite there for virtual production. Nanite works, but not Lumen. And um, 5.1 once just once that comes out, just like VR, starts to add all these features back into a virtual production pipeline. And uh, hopefully, you know, we start to see more innovation and exactly. more workflows being developed with these new tools available. Yeah, I, I think there there's there's
1: definitely good starting points today to, to go out and get started with this stuff. So I, similar to Alex, like, if you're interested in this, like, if you want to become a part of virtual production, I would just get out there and start trying it. Like, just literally set up your monitors and do it, <laughs> like Alex said. I think that's a great idea. I got some, like you know, bobbleheads over there, like, I'll do it, you know, um, I think that's really a great way to start, because you might think that your home setup is very different from, like, what folks out there are doing, but <laughs> everyone's still figuring this stuff out, yeah. like, no, no one has the, the kind of ideal solution, everyone's still experimenting, um, so, 100%, like, yeah. I think it's, it's a cool space, though, What well, one of the things that I'm really excited for is just, like, um, how many different ways you can use the same space. Oh right? yeah. Like yeah. A, and we were talking about, oh, like uh iteration times right now, there's still a lot of acceleration that can happen. And but the fact of the matter is it's still significantly faster than traditional pipelines. Yeah. So like it's also very cool to think about how how much further we could come to the point where you know studios all of a sudden can do Tons of work in a day. Yeah, um, and you know this is maybe kind of getting on a ta- tangent, um, but I, I, I'm pretty fascinated to see how virtual production changes this industry in general.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, not just for the, you know Unreal or the technology. Um, one of the things that's kind of been happening, or, or, or I've seen inside of media entertainment, is everyone's kind of talking about. Um, the kind of influx of content with particularly streaming services, you know, yeah. HBO, Netflix, etc. cetera. Um, and <laughs> there are a lot of folks out there, or a lot of studios out there who all, all of a sudden, you know, getting to kind of grab at way more franchises and, and getting to kind of take on way more shots just because, like, content is being funded more long form. And, you know, if you're producing... 10 one-hour episodes, you're going to have way more VFX shots than even something like a film, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So these series take a ton of effort um, and more people are getting involved. Um, So uh, what might happen, I'm assuming, is that this could continue to happen. Like We could continue to see content grow over time because things like virtual production make it more accessible for folks to go out there and iterate uh, or be a part of more productions at once right Mm -hmm. Um, at one time you can only be a part of one or two like major productions and and there are plenty of places where it was just one and everyone was focused Um, but nowadays uh, and and maybe with virtual production all of a sudden you can get a lot done yeah Um, and I'm really excited to see kind of where that goes
0: and these stages are growing incredibly fast. I think in the past year, something like 400 new you know, LED wall stages or virtual production stages have been constructed. A lot of them, um, obviously internationally, but a lot of them on the West Coast of the United States. Uh, more and more popping up on the East Coast. Yeah. And uh, you know, I should also mention too that if anyone... Does feel like that they're at a level here where they can do something really exciting and they're looking for work. Actually reach out because there yeah. could be some opportunities on the horizon. So don't be afraid to say, hey, this is something I've been playing with. Here's a few sample projects I messed around with, and uh we could have a conversation. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I, I um
1: I, I think uh I I haven't quite lost the thread that I that I, <laughs> I I was on but that was an important comment so I did I oh, like sorry. I, I no no 100% um definitely reach out I I think it's it's interesting to see kind of where um the industry is going in terms of also the cost effectiveness of of you know recording and mm-hmm. staging things you know we spent a week and we kind of learned a lot um and I feel like um just a matter of time before there's a lot of people who can be very competent and doing this very quickly. Um, And one of the things that happens across the VFX industry is that folks, you know, they go out there, um, if you're making a movie, you might say, okay, I have 1500 shots uh, and a bunch of studios might bid on some of those shots. Um, As the cost of, you know, production goes down with things like, um, you know, virtual production, uh, it's going to be pretty fascinating to see how kind of everyone in the, in the industry has to respond yeah. um, because there's a pretty large chance that there's a, there's a good number of folks who are kind of going to have to get on this train mm-hmm. so that, you know, they can make sure that they bid uh, and are able to get work uh, just because they're competing against a bunch of people who can maybe produce content faster or produce more iterations, or maybe their work is better because they get a chance to access different ta- talent pools, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Like, yeah. there's so many interesting effects that this this kind of stuff could have um, on even the content you see at home. So, like, mm-hmm. e- even if you're not invested in this, chances are you're going to see the effects of this happening probably much quicker than you're expecting. Right? Like, Mandalorian had a, had a pretty huge effect. Across this industry, when it comes to thinking about how to make new productions,
0: yeah, yeah, and just the idea that this can all happen inside a real-time game engine like like Unreal is is pretty incredible. I don't yeah. think anyone thought um, twenty years ago that the kinds of things people were doing video games on could actually support an actual feature film or, or high prestige uh, television series. Yeah, a hundred percent.
1: And there's so many cool people out there who are doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. out there making. You know, shows or making feature films, and and there's really so much uh, amazing uh, um, content, out, or like content on its way, or out there already, right? Like, uh, I I think it's it's pretty impressive to see see how people are jumping on this technology.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I think uh, Jacob and I were discussing would be a fun thing to do every week is just a little highlight of something that yeah. caught our eye, of uh, something going on. And like, we're not going to, this is not going to be a new show. <laughs> we're not going to actively be seeking out, like what are the 10 things you need to know from what happened this week? Um, not our bag. But I thought every week would be kind of fun to to do something. So like this week, uh, something that caught my eye, my friend Kevin Leibson, uh brought this to attention. Um, Brielle Garcia had a really cool post on Twitter where um, they were using a Marilyn Monroe-esque metahuman and had that metahuman moving around, but then he used something called Deep Face Lab, which allowed for a real-time deep fake to be mapped onto the metahuman space to make this one look more like Marilyn Monroe. And with all the mouth movements and everything going on with um, the character, that now looked exactly like it was Marilyn Monroe's face. Now, it's interesting to talk about something like the Uncanny Valley, because I saw some people wow. saying like, it doesn't quite look like Marilyn Monroe, what's going on here? Yeah. And as far as I could tell, if you paused any frame of what was going on there, it did look like Marilyn Monroe, but the, the movements, yeah. that can have another uncanny valley to it because the <laughs> way you capture, whether you're using you know a, a lower end or a higher end motion capture system, whatever you're doing for the face, it can start to feel a little robotic, a little wooden. And at that point, no matter how excellent the capture is um, or how excellent the, the model is and the, the deep faking going on with the face, um, it's still going to feel a little bit off, and so you know there's several kinds of uncanny valley, and I don't yeah. think everyone always thinks about that. It's not just how something looks. That's like metahumans in general, yeah, though, absolutely. right? Like uh, what we saw with the Matrix demo,
1: yeah. And you know, Meta Keanu Reeves and, and such. There, there was a huge number of people who who were like, "That looks nothing like Keanu Reeves." A huge number <laughs> of people were like, "Wow, that's the coolest thing ever. That looks exactly like Keanu Reeves." And I, I, I think um, it's not it, it's 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 not like a an experience thing. It's not mm-hmm. like a you look at so many you know rendered images, or you p- spent uh, you know spend so much time in Unreal, and all of a sudden you can detect metahumans. Mm-hmm. It's this is a natural physiological thing that like you are are programmed to detect even the slightest you know differences with reality, and with faces, faces and people are one of the things like we are most he- you know heavily programmed to be able to detect and so with something like that i i I think that's probably a lot of what's going on is like even if it was almost perfect Mm -hmm. people would have such a strong sense that it
0: would be so difficult to achieve exactly and so um yeah brielle does all sorts of very cool projects in in unreal engine as well as programs like snap and other things Uh, follow them on twitter at taco lamp if you get the chance and uh, cool. thanks, Brielle, for everything you do. <laughs> um, it's very exciting. I think maybe one other thing we should touch base on before the end of today's podcast is for anyone who's watching this on YouTube. You might be wondering, like, why the heck do we look like oh, how yeah, we look? Good point. What's going <laughs> I should on? Should probably that, Jacob? mention that yeah. at the end of the episode. At the very yeah. End, yeah, yeah, we got
1: um, so Alex. Uh, um, showed up at my uh, lovely apartment here Mm -hmm. with four Azure connects (laughs) um, and we spent quite a lot of time trying to get them all set up. Uh, We had a few issues with the USB and they take a a very specific
0: kind of USB cord and they need a lot of USB power.
1: Yeah, they they need a lot of bandwidth. So we weren't able to get four working, but we thought this was cool enough. Yeah. You know, to be a, an interesting visual for the podcast. So, I don't know, let us know what you think if we you want us to keep doing weird, <laughs> crazy visuals of, uh, you know, random uh, <laughs> technology. Because
0: Alex has a lot in his closet. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm fortunate to, to get to play with a lot of this stuff a little early sometimes. Um, and the Kinect I've been playing with for years now, I've been very excited about how volumetric capture, especially in VR, starts to bridge that uncanny valley a little bit. And also, I, I feel like, again, there's always gonna be someone who's listening to the podcast and is like, I don't really know what the uncanny valley is. Yeah, yeah. So would you like to give a, a brief definition? Sure, so the
1: uncanny valley is a point at which graphics become so realistic that you're actively kind of, uh, uh, I guess, perturbed or just dis- <laughs> disturbed by yeah. them. Yeah. It's it's a point, it's, it's like a very specific point at which it's no longer cartoonish or stylized. It's clear that it's attempting to replicate a, you know, a, a uh, um, the real world, so to speak, uh, but it doesn't quite hit it, or mm-hmm. even in sometimes, like, it, it surpasses it to the extent that, like, um, you know, maybe, portions of the image are incorrect, but some are so accurate. Like the the contrast even can can be uh, deterrent. Unsettling. Uh, Unsettling, yeah. And and I think one of the, actually, the greatest examples of this was NVIDIA once did a demo with, um, uh, they did it with like, I think eight, at the time it must have been Turing or or, uh, the generation before Volta, you know, eight of the, I, I think it was like Quadro 6000s of the guy's face. Mm. Do you remember that it was like a bald guy with yeah, a face? I and he, you know, he was doing all these mouth movements and everyone's was like, oh my God, this is <laughs> so weird. Like it was a little too real. And everyone was like, I don't know if I like this. Yeah. Um, but the Uncanny Valley is just a kind of a huge debate across this industry in general. Like what do you do with the Uncanny Valley? Do you do you really attempt to go for it? Is stylization, you know, is Pixar right? Right. right. Um, I, I don't know, I don't have an answer.
0: Yeah, like I played a lot with metahumans, and it's interesting because a lot of what my understanding of what Epic's trying to do there is make it very easy to not be in the uncanny valley while still having a very good-looking digital human, Um, but I did find that even within the constraints of what was there, uh, my team and I have had to do a lot of massaging before we find exactly the kind of metahuman that is going to feel good, especially in VR. I think there's even more of a sense of the uncanny yeah, valley the, in VR. Uh, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, you get dead yeah. eyes looking at you and that's no good and you mm-hmm. want everything to feel as natural as possible.
1: Yeah, for folks who have never tried VR, one of my tropes, and Alex has probably already heard this multiple times, but is that when you are in VR, it's, a, it's an essentially different experience. Like, uh, for example, the, the, ha- the first, um, or really the first, all the Halo games, like, Master Chief is, like, nine feet tall, right? <laughs> and you can't tell, because when you play Halo or you play, uh, you know, 2D games, it's all just about how it looks on the screen. Right. Um, it's all just about how your character compares to uh, its surroundings, and it's really kind of a- almost impossible to detect that. And yes, you can, like, pull out your ruler and figure out that Master Chief is nine feet tall. That's how we <laughs> right, know. Right, uh, But the thing is, as soon as you get into VR, it is instantly apparent it's the kind of thing where um, I remember uh, we had scenes for example just like household appliances and I would be trying to like configure them on my display you know inside of Unreal so that like my fridge looked like a fridge mm-hmm. and I'd be like okay that looks good I would get in and it would be like four feet too tall right it, it would just be completely ridiculous um, and it took I think quite a while for me to even get close mm-hmm. um, so it, it's, a, it's a very different design constraint it's pretty interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone wants to try this out for themselves, there's a setting in Unreal Engine um, in the world settings that allows you to set the world to meters scale. And by default, that's at 100. If you change that setting, you're you're not going to notice anything feeling different unless you're in VR, just as Jacob was saying. Like, if you're looking at a screen, there's not really a sense of scale. But if you take that slider and bring it down to 50 or bring it up to 200, in VR, you're going to really feel how different the world is. Yeah, one of, one of my favorite, I'm going to kind of brag here for a second because <laughs> sure. one of, one of my favorite uh,
1: um, mechanics I ever made in VR was I was working on this initial prototype for like a, um, like a ba- basic like architectural sketching thing in VR where you could like draw walls and cool. connect them. Um, but I was I spent a lot of time thinking about okay, how can you like zoom out and like mm-hmm. visualize it from top down, you know, floor plans, whatever. Um, and I spent a lot of time on this, and then I. I decided that the best way to do it was to leave the controllers the same size. Mm. Right? They'd be this like little tiny, like what are these controllers for ants, right? Yeah. Like they'd be the same tiny size, but you would continue to grow. Mm, and because awesome. the controllers were in your hands and you could feel them, that was one way that you could instantly feel the scale Yeah. without like, you know, kind of having to take your headset off and reset your experience mm. or, or, you know, trying to, you know, banana for scale, like Reddit, right? Like yeah. there, there, there was really no way to do it, but like if you kept it the same, all of a sudden you had this like instant perspective. It was pretty interesting.
0: That's funny. I spend a bunch of time trying to make sure that when I have an input in, in Unreal Engine that changes your world-to-meter scale, that like everything scales perfectly with it. So you never feel like the controllers are getting too big or too yeah, small. It, but I actually like that as a reference point.
1: Yeah, yeah it, it was something I wasn't expecting. It was probably like a, a, a bug or something, right, that I introduced. I can't remember at this point. <laughs> it's probably like in Blueprints I had the, the wrong transform or something. But... Um, a bug can be a feature. Yeah, I remember seeing it. I was like, "Oh, that actually that works because, like I said, you can feel it in your hand." Yeah. I, so going back to Uncanny Valley, which yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I realize we've now gone way off track. Um, Uncanny Valley is just such an interesting thing to talk about in terms of like the larger. Uh, um, I, I was I was mentioning that there's so many debates around this kind of across uh, industries and and across conversations. Um, oh. I got keep, keep you, keep you okay. got the box I'm okay, just gonna okay. Hold okay. This. yeah um but I, I think for everyone it's kind of up to you to decide uh you know what kind of content you consume, right and uh, I think at the end of the day one of one of my goals is to to make it clear you know what is real and what is fake and not necessarily try to. Uh, um, make decisions for people about, Mm. like, what it is they want to consume, uh, you know, in in whatever future we go towards.
0: Yeah, it's an artistic choice. And uh, if someone wants to uh, make something feel very unsettling, that might actually be a decision. Uh, They might actually want to have something where you feel like there's something a little bit wrong. (laughs) NVIDIA probably didn't think that, but we'll, we'll let it slide. Yeah. I mean, you get things like what happened with Sonic,
1: where like Sonic was Sonic, instantly redesigned, oh. and
0: then but then got to pop up in his original form in the Chip uh, movie, which I don't know if
1: you watched. This so is like yeah, a larger debate about like live action movies, yeah, which yeah, I think yeah. we won't get won't get into. Like, uh, if if live action Sonic was necessary, <laughs> um, and I apologize to anyone who might be watching this who like worked on live action Sonic. You never know. Uh, but I think everyone kind of agreed on that one. I feel like we're pretty unanimous on that. Like the first live action Sonic was,
0: you know, not that great. So my kids loved it. Um, yeah. So tying into this whole Uncanny Valley discussion, we, we spoke briefly about these Azure Connects and trying to use them for uh, volumetric streaming. One of the reasons why that's been so exciting to me for a while is because often when I'm talking to live performers and they want to have a sense of how they can exist in VR, in the metaverse, in whatever form they're going to be, it becomes this question of, well, what are my choices? And it's like, well, you can be an avatar and you can be a very simplified avatar that avatar, avatar that will live in something like VR chat or some existing social VR platform. You can be a very high fidelity avatar, like uh, a metahuman or something like that. Uh, And in those cases, there's some benefits that you don't have to look like yourself. You can change all sorts of qualities of of how your bone structure works. You could transform into a dragon and control a dragon. That's all cool. Uh, And that's one option. But if you want to look more like yourself and really try to bypass anything that could start to approach the uncanny valley, then you might want to do green screen or stereoscopic green screen, which will actually have two cameras, a left and a right eye, which can look very good in VR. Um, There's an Oculus Quest game called Supernatural that does that very well with the workout trainers in there. Uh, Or you can do volumetric capture, and with volumetric capture, ideally, you're trying to have as much of a 3D model of the person as possible. And just like with traditional animation, what you're actually doing is about 30 times a second, you're generating a new full 3D model of that person. And there's a lot of different companies and and plugins that start to play with this. Um, There's an SVF plugin that comes from Microsoft that does this. There's a company called Arcturus, a company called um, Wild Capture that does this. And so what I'm holding is actually a calibration cube that is meant to sync up Uh, multiple Azure connects, so that they all have a sense of where they are in relationship to each other, so that if they're all in a circle or just triangulating, they can start to generate a very high-quality 3D mesh streaming in real time. And so this is from a company called Soar, so we're starting to to beta test that a little bit. Um, Currently, they only have a Unity plugin, but they are working on an Unreal Engine plugin. And usually, volumetric captures take a lot of time to process, to look good. And once they're done, you know, they're often like an MP4 file and and can actually be pretty lightweight. But to be able to do that live, and be able to have a low enough latency that a volumetric capture of a person that feels like a proper 3D yeah. hologram can really be interacting with an audience and maybe the audience is in uh, avatar form or maybe they exist as video feeds, whatever. That starts to get really exciting to me as a, a new way for people to interact.
1: Yeah, honestly, it wasn't even something that I was really aware of. Mm-hmm. I mean, a volumetric capture is like uh, has been a dream for like uh, the next evolution of like 360 video yeah. and stuff like that for a while. But not something I'd considered for live performance because uh, uh, I always considered it pretty inconsistent. Mm-hmm. But the first time we set up these cameras, <laughs> and we haven't been able to reproduce no. it since. We stumbled <laughs> because <into it. laughs> um, probably because we're using we need like a USB car or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the first time we set it up, I was like. It was capturing like all the the wrinkles on my sweatshirt. Yeah. You could see the like curvature of my face. I was like, "Wow, this is actually incredible, it's super detailed." I, I think I could just watch the point cloud and yeah. like actually have like a very good conception of of the emotion and, and scale. So, so I was I was pretty fascinated. Also, I should mention for people who are listening in, <laughs> uh, because Alex has been holding this cube. <laughs> right. Alex is holding a, a maybe like foot and a half tall, you know, plastic rectangular box with four you know, black and white, yeah, Tetris, like, (laughs) Tetris-piece-looking markers on them, uh, and, and, you know, we kind of just hold them up while everything gets calibrated, uh, assuming, uh, I'm assuming it works probably pretty similar to what uh, used to happen with, like, uh, AR and uh, QR codes, right? Mm, Yeah. Where they would essentially uh, um, use the patterns that could be oriented uh, uniquely, Uh, Because, you know, you can see all of these shapes are asymmetric, Uh, you know, it could be oriented uniquely uh, and then pattern matched probably with some sort of uh, uh, screen pattern matching or detection, whatever it is, right? Um, But very cool um, and also very easy to calibrate, I would say. A lot of this stuff is not easy to calibrate, Um, so (laughs) that's always cool to see. Yeah. Innovation, it's its an exciting time to be alive.
0: So, like, wh- where do you think this stuff is going, though, with volumetric capture? I, I hope it keeps going in a direction where it can be as simple as possible. I mean, there is very, very cool... Um, Potential for even like something like an iPhone between its lidar and and depth camera and you know other cameras on there To start to have a very portable solution for doing anything from volumetric capture In fact, there's um, an app called record 3d you can find on your phone Which does that in a pretty cool way and being able to just get to a point where it's as frictionless as possible for anyone to start to provide a sense of, of scale and presence, all the things we like about VR to anyone, yep. even if they're watching it through, you know, their computer or their phone um, is, is very exciting to me. Yeah, I, I I mean, there's this whole kind of movement now
1: with VTubers or whatever you want to call, like, you know, uh, uh, there's I think a natural evolution to live streaming that is way more personal mm. and also captures the same effect you get when you put a VR headset on. Yeah in the sense that like when you put a VR headset on all of a sudden you feel like you're in the room mm-hmm. with whatever it is that's around you. it could yeah. be a person. So I'm really fascinated to see uh, for example how, how this could have uh, you know um, make live events really more personal. Mm-hmm. I, I remember f- you know in, in really I mean even today with a lot of stuff that happens inside of you know meta or oculus, whatever you want to call it. Um, Their platform, um, 360 video was never really something that um, really captured my attention very much because Mm -hmm. I always felt... Uh, that it just, well, quote-unquote, felt flat, yeah. right? Like, uh-huh. it, it legitimately, I, I didn't, it didn't feel any better to me, necessarily, right. than, right. you know, a large-screen TV where there was a, cinemata- you know, quote-unquote, cinem- cinematographer. That's, that, actually, I'm, I'm going to remove those quotes. I feel like I'm being offensive to <laughs> sports photographers who are, I, I'm sure, extremely talented and dedicated people, so I'm going to take that away. Okay. Uh, the cinematographers no, in, in sports who, like, are, are actually guiding the action and, and giving me the best view... What I think would be interesting though is like if for example you could do something volumetric where i actually feel like i'm sitting in the stands mm-hmm. or or maybe uh uh you know someone spills popcorn on me and you know like i i don't know what it is right
0: but uh, there's something more compelling about that to me yeah, i hear you um well there's one other app that i was hoping to highlight before we wrap up yeah. today's um session it's uh one that i saw in the real-time filmmakers facebook group and uh, i thought that sounds amazing the the pitch was basically hey would you like to be immersed in unreal engine environments and using a green screen start to um insert yourself in in basically a virtual production capacity into these environments using just your phone so in the spirit of like where we hope this is going in the future the advent of like cloud streaming to be able to get unreal engine scenes um, onto something as as portable as a phone, and to then use something like the AR detection capabilities, AR kit on an iPhone, for example, to start to move around the environment is very, very cool. So this is something that is really only going to be visible to people watching um, on the stream, but I do want to just demonstrate yeah. the app, which is called SkyGlass. It is on test flight. Yeah. You have to mention also runs in the cloud. Yes, in the
1: cloud. Yeah, so you're, you know, your phone is not doing any of the, the processing here, so it's running in...
0: Um, Unreal Engine. Yeah, runs in Unreal Engine. You'll actually recognize some of the scenes here. Um, right, now, right now, as I move my phone, it's actually starting to move around the environment. Um, if I had a green screen behind me, I would be putting myself in this environment at this moment, which would be very cool, and I could record a video doing a, a news broadcast from the subway, which I actually did do with my child. <laughs> um, I was like, ah, welcome to yeah. the subway. And um, what's also cool is there's a little game controller here, And then this actually allows me to steer around the Unreal Engine environment. And just once again, to emphasize what Jacob mentioned about this being on the cloud, none of this is actually rendering using my phone's hardware. Essentially, this is the same as running like the Netflix app. I just need to get a video stream, and I need to send a little bit of input data back, um, the same kind of way you might do something like Bandersnatch on Netflix (laughs) and have that slight bit of interactivity. But as I move around this environment, this is all being rendered on a computer on the cloud which is pretty awesome. Yeah. I mean, the, it's really cool to see how,
1: how folks are, are, are doing this kind of stuff. And, and I would really love for this kind of stuff to be that bridge, really, for virtual production. Like, for folks who are interested in virtual production, maybe coming from a background where, uh, you know, they set up a green screen in their bedroom, and they're like, oh, I want to tr- I, I get into real time. I want to kind of understand and experiment with this. This would be a great way, I think, for someone to get started. Just yeah. download an app. And all of a sudden, you know, your background has, you know, background replacement and tracking, and mm-hmm. you get perspective. I, I like. I, I haven't personally tested it on mm-hmm. like a, a solid green screen. Yeah. Uh, but given the results I got, uh, like I have a a wall in another room that's painted green. Right. Given mm-hmm. the results I got just with a painted wall, mm-hmm. I, I think I'd be very excited to see what someone could do with with you know a proper setup. Yeah. Pretty exciting. <laughs> well. I think I guess we'll cap it there. Um, thank you so much for listening, watching, um, and, uh, and just like we mentioned at the beginning, uh, subscribe to the podcast wherever you're watching or listening uh, and leave us a rating or a like. Uh, we really appreciate it and let us know what you'd like to see or hear in the next episode.
0: How can they do that, Jacob? How can they tell us those things?
1: They can tell us those things in comments, on Twitter, He's at iBrews. I think I'm Jacob Feldman17. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I should fix that. I feel like being we, 17th is never a
0: good qualifier, but uh, at Jacob Feldman17. Um, we could also create a Twitter account for the, the podcast here. Or yes. um, is there an email address they could send something to us at? You can
1: 100% contact us at info at uepodcast.com. Now, this is the unofficial <laughs> Unreal Engine podcast, so we are not associated with Epic Games. No. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, <laughs> but you can contact us at info at uepodcast.com and you can you know reach all of our fees at uh,
0: RSS.uepodcast.com. Yeah um, A couple final things to wrap up please do register for Unreal Fest if you can. It's coming up in mid-October. Jacob and I will both be there. I'm sure we're going to try to do some interviews and and try to see as many cool things as we can there. Um, I'm teaching a course on virtual reality which will be fun because it's based on a course that I've been teaching privately for about a year and a half now and I've never been allowed to show any of that to the public and finally (laughs) that'll be something that will be both at Unreal Fest and then posted publicly. Um, I also want to mention that I was on the CG Pro podcast last week. That was a really fun conversation with um, Edward Dawson Taylor. CG Pro is a very cool company that does a lot of Unreal Engine training. Um, Check that out. This coming week I'll be on a podcast with uh, Vikas Reddy from Light Twist. Light Twist is another very exciting virtual production app that I'm sure we'll talk about more in a future episode. But uh, I believe that will be live on Tuesday at noon Eastern Standard Time. So keep an eye on the Light Twist or the iBrews Twitter account for more info on that. Very cool. All right. See you next time. Thanks everyone.